most of us, we graduate school and we figure it out. And mm -hmm. it's super up, down, left, right, <laughs> unpredictable and nonlinear. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think the creative fields are much better sort of model for us, which is picking a book to bet on or picking, being a movie producer, mm. right? Like you're basically in the business of creating hits. You're listening to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast, the show where personal finance is about the person, not just the numbers. Here on BFF, we talk about how to make money your best friend so that you can have the freedom to make the most out of life. We go through the honest discussions about money so that you don't need to make the same mistakes. We demystify jargon so that no one can smoke you with complicated acronyms. After all, money's greatest value is to give us control over our time, which is truly our greatest asset. I'm your host, Junus Yu. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast. Our topic today is why a downturn is a great time to explore career paths for Gen Z and younger millennials. And today we have a very, very special guest, Aki. Hi Aki, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hi Junis, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming down. And I really wanted to get you to talk about this topic because of your experience in this sector. So for listeners who might not know Aki, Aki is a co-founder of Talent Stories, a talent content and training company that's based in Singapore. But prior to starting Talent Stories, you were the director of talent acquisition at Netflix in APEC. You also led Asia recruiting at Uber and held various recruiting HR roles in Google, Greylock Partners and Dropbox in Silicon Valley. So when you look at Gen Z, do you think they actually differ? You know, because people often see, say that millennials, Gen Z, strawberry generation, you need to think about recruiting them in a different way. You need mm. to put like beanbags on the pool table. Do you think that's true? <laughs> In a word, yes, I do. Uh, and whether it's beanbags or otherwise, I think and that... It means more than beanbags, it actually. It does, thankfully. But I'm a big believer in those generational differences. Junis, mm. I, don't, I don't know what happens in between, what is it, uh, 96 is one of the cutoffs, right? Like, I don't know what's in the water, but I, I firmly believe that folks are just wired differently across the generations. And 96 is that cutoff that you see. That's the one I've seen. 81 to 96, I think, is millennials, maybe? Yes, And then yes. 96 onwards is roughly um, Gen Z. Yes. I'm squarely a Gen X. Mm -hmm. uh, there used to be a Gen Y, <laughs> and, and they got lumped in, I think, with the millennials. So yeah, I think it's real. You think it's real. So what do you think are characteristics of like the Gen Zs versus millennials versus all those before? Um, my parents are boomers, right? Baby mm. boomers. Yes. And I was told as Gen X, like, just go find your passion, Aki. Like, mm. just do what you're passionate about. Mm. And whether or not I followed it as, as Aki, I, I don't think I, I actually did. But that was sort of the approach for, for Gen X. And then I think as you get into Gen Z, uh, millennials and certainly Gen Z, mm. I think the framework has gone pretty squarely from following your passion. You're seeing a whole bunch of people questioning that notion directly mm -hmm. to more of how do I make work work for me? Right? Mm. Like it's almost like a tool mm -hmm. and something to be, it's not a be all and end all. Right? Yep. It's, it's one of the means that people have to lead broadly defined, fulfilling life, mm. which I, you know, I never, for better, for worse, I personally never approached work in that way. Mm. But the more I talk to younger folks, yeah, it does feel like there's been a real mindset shift, shift. Mm. for folks such that now work is, is more of a, a practical tool, one mm. of many, versus the be all and end all. But how was it for you growing up? Because you're saying your parents are kind of like, hey, you just go and follow your passion, which... I'm sure you, having lived in Beijing, obviously lived in Singapore for 10 years, you know that a lot of 
Asian parents don't necessarily, you know, especially for boomer parents, they don't necessarily tell their children like go and follow your passion. It's more of like, you know, go and go and get good grades and then yeah. go and um, you know, get a nice major. Yeah. You know, be a doctor, a lawyer. You know, yeah. they're very traditional. Yeah, for me, I had a mix, right? So I, I was, uh, my dad immigrated to the U.S. Mm. and my mom was was born and raised in the states, mm-hmm. but I definitely had that sort of immigrants chip on my shoulder, <laughs> um, and I worked hard to get into an Ivy League school and mm. you know I followed that traditional path pretty yes. squarely by yourself self-motivated self-motivated and you know parental pressure as well but it wasn't parental encouragement yeah it was it was softer I think than mm. what mm-hmm. one hears about in other parts of the world mm. um, but I had enough freedom right to be able to like carve that path once I got the degree and my folks had helped put me through school then it was sort of like all right now I got to make this work right mm. and I had to figure out a way to pay off the debt and so I, I had more of that economic pressure on top of the the self-pressure as you rightly put it yes um, that sort of defined how I went about my career mm. versus, yeah, let me find something I'm passionate about was never really um, a thing for me. Because we discussed this briefly before this, right? That's that conversation, you know, on passion versus pay, but then you had a different take on it, which is exploration versus focus, which I wanted to talk about. Mm. And also, I also wanted to talk to, you know, where we are right now, because, you know, we are basically looking at uh, that potential downturn and in general, a lot of anxiety uh, across the board. So, you know, someone who is just a Gen Z who is listening to this, how do you think they should be best making use of this situation? Um, one is, look, it's it's a marathon, right? I think there's a temptation to just be in the now, to think about this job, mm. maybe to think about the next job. The reality is it's we're talking, for most of us, it's decades of work, right? Yes. Whether it's my be-all and end-all or it's just a job in the context of many parts of my identity. Mm-hmm. It's still a decades-long endeavor. And so mm-hmm. I think let's bear that in mind. It isn't a sprint, even if our minds tend to treat it like one. Mm-hmm. The second is the right way to frame a career is uh, not just long-term, but it's super unpredictable. You're, you're really managing a portfolio of bets. That's, mm. that's how I've come to look at my own career, mm. is we're constantly making wagers, mostly with our time, but also with our physical presence, with our effort, right? Yes. And we're hoping that that career bet pays off, whether that's financially, whether that's skills, whether that's learning, great boss. It's different for different folks. And generationally, it could be that my bet is that this job is going to allow me enough flexibility to do other things. Mm -hmm. It's still a bet, right? Yes. I love that you say that because there was another guest that I had that echoed the same thought, Mm. right? Because the, I guess the fallacy is a lot of us are brought up the notion that your career is sort of a linear one where you kind of say, okay, you know, there's this progression and then if you enter a certain industry, you kind of like work way up the ranks to partner or something and that's your life. But then he had a really, I guess, mature approach because, you know, when you're young, try as many things as possible. Time is cheap. You know, you have less obligations. That is the best time in your life to go and really figure out what you want, right? Agreed. There are exceptions to this, right? And I'll give you a very obvious one. And then my point is that almost everything else is not this. If you want to become a doctor, Mm. it is a very defined, very rote, very linear path, right? You take a bunch of pre-med courses, you slog through organic chemistry, you take the MCATs Mm -hmm. to get into medical school, medical school, residency, internship, et cetera, right? Mm. It's hard, but it's known. It's very predictable. Yes. Most of us, we graduate school and we figure it out. And Mm -hmm. it's super up, down, left, right, unpredictable and Mm. nonlinear. So yeah, I think the creative fields are much better 
sort of model for us, which is picking a book to bet on or picking, being a movie producer, mm. right? Like you're basically in the business of creating hits, yes, right? And yes. the question is, how do you get to that first hit, by the yeah, way, that yeah. first win is massive. Yes. Um, and then how do you repeat that? Right? Yes. That's, my, that's the business I'm in, is trying to look at, understand my own career, my own twists and turns, to be able to say, when things went well, what actually happened in retrospect? Let's go to your career. I mean, we didn't talk about this, but then do you think it was linear? Or do you think it was like making a lot of bets? And you know what, you, were you like proactively trying to like push the boundaries to do what? made you uncomfortable as long as it's something that you know you haven't done before yeah the latter for sure mm. i was an intern at jp morgan in mm -hmm. new york mm. i did another internship in beijing mm. for ford motor company my first job out of college was at a software company in austin texas mm. it was a startup and so by the time i got to my second year post-graduation including internships i had tried multiple industries multiple functions multiple roles in retrospect, though, it was the best thing ever because I was experimenting and I was learning. Mm. I was becoming aware mm. of what it was. I was trying different things, different bosses, different contexts. And yes. I was subconsciously, by the way, I was crossing stuff off the list, left, right, and center, Junis, and thinking mm. such that when I finally stumbled, and it was a stumbled into something that I was good at, mm. then I went deep. And that's where I think you get the outsized return. How long did it take for you to do that? Because you were doing that experimentation, exploration quite intensely, I guess, above average. That was from 98 to 2004, call it. So within six years, mm. right? Wildly different context, wildly different problems to be solved, call yes. it. And so that was a period of about six years such that 2005, I uh, got a call from Google mm -hmm. about my resume and it was about a recruiting role. And that was the moment, right? That was the first win, mm. right? Where I'd done all these random, small, seemingly meaningless things. They all led very squarely to that phone call from Google. How did that happen? And, you know, how much uh, yeah. were you doing? How much were you How much were you involved in, like, recruiting in your various roles? Yeah. So one of the roles only was I was straight up headhunting for an agency for about two and a half years. Mm. So I had, um, I'd studied abroad and spoke mm. decent Mandarin. Mm. I spoke Spanish because I'd, Spent a year in Guatemala City. Mm -hmm. Then after some travel, I basically got on my alumni network thing. You know, you, like, you log in and I wrote the dorkiest. You should see it. I still have the emails. <laughs> like, dear Mrs. So-and-so, my name is such and such. I'm writing to you because it's so formal. And this woman told, like we connected well. Like she, she worked in HR mm -hmm. at Yahoo. She said, sure, I'll take your resume afterwards and, and spread it around. Mm -hmm. And she sent it to a friend who had just joined Google. Mm. So that's what why the phone call came. And then this guy called me up. He's now a dear friend. He attended my wedding. Mm. He was a recruiter. And he said, I recruit recruiters for international recruiting. And there's this Asia Pacific Latin America recruiting team that needs a recruiter. Mm. And it looks like you speak Spanish and Mandarin. <laughs> and I was like... You know, basically, like, when can I start? Like, you only can connect the dots back. In retrospect, 100%, yes. right? Mm. The year in Guatemala, the HR internship in Beijing, mm. the recruiting experience at the agency, mm. like, it all came together in ways I certainly couldn't have predicted. Mm -hmm. But I was able to get the job and I was able to do well in it mm. because I'd explored. That's really my my belief, right? I'd solved so many disparate, different types of problems in so many different contexts. Yes, in different roles, you name in it. different industries, teams, industries, different bosses. bosses, like you rightly said. Yeah. I think it is. I think it is important. 
Yeah. But the story after that is I found a niche I really liked, mm. but I still explored the heck out of it. Mm. And that exploration within talent mm-hmm. has allowed me to be more successful mm. than someone who went straight and narrow and mm. just stayed a recruiter, quote unquote. I did recruiting programs, which is more marketing. I recruited for a venture capital firm. I mm. recruited for startups. I recruited for more established companies. I did it in the US. Mm. I got to do it overseas. I did it for engineering functions. I did it for sales functions. Mm. And then you take on a team and it's like this whole other job, right? You're leading yes. recruiters. So I think as much as I went deep, I also continued to Get explore, breath. right? Like so range. Yeah. If it's okay, I'll bring up this notion of divergence and convergence, mm, right? I yes, think please. It comes from creative problem solving. And, and a career is a creative problem to be solved. Mm. It's a long-term one. Yes. It's super unpredictable. And so taking a framework from the world of creative problem solving and applying it to your career, in my mind, makes a ton of sense, which mm-hmm. is you start off, you've got different ideas, different things you want to say and explore. And so you're very playful. You're dabbling. You're, you're fundamentally exploratory, right? Mm. At some point, though, you've got to finish the paper, call it, right? You yes. have to say something concrete. Yep. And so you go from this broad accordion open. You whittle down. You whittle it what? down. It's like, here is what I am trying to say. And now I'm trying to say it as best as I can. Mm. That's concentration. That's convergence, right? Mm. And so we see this in all sorts of creative fields and arts and writing, like I said, where explore, diverge, concentrate, focus. But I guess, like, you know, it could be possible that people in a creative industry, they, they could just spend the whole time exploring and not doing the, the latter part of whittling down to what is the essence of what you're trying to do. Totally. You know, some people, it takes longer than others. There's no judgments here. Mm -hmm. But I think the right combination is some period of exploration Mm -hmm. followed by some period of convergence or concentration focus. Would it be fair to put some kind of time period to it? But do you think there is? I mean... Um, no, I, I don't. Oh, I it depends on the I intensity at which you're exploring. I would give a different framework altogether, which mm. is less of a, a end count of years and more mm-hmm. of this notion of career capital, right? Mm. I think the exploration is okay and healthy mm-hmm. so long as and provided is you're garnering some form of capital when you do this exploration. Mm-hmm. You're learning new skills. Mm. You're making new network. You're becoming more self-aware. So I I think it's a very complex equation. Mm. Ultimately, are you getting some form of capital in these sort of stints? So, I mean, you mentioned the word um, career capital quite a lot, right? But then let's define it for, let's say, people who are, you know, just entering the workforce. How should they be defining career capital? Because like you said, it could be several things. Yeah. You sort of hit on the notion of compounding, right? Mm -hmm. And you earn early and you let the money work for you. Mm. Career capital compounds too, right? And I say that less in terms of when you garner it, Mm -hmm. but more in terms of um, your network is a form of career capital. Mm. And the better you become at networking, that's Mm -hmm. a skill. Yes. The more you do it and do it well, that network compounds over time. You're absolutely right because relationships need to be built. It's one thing to know of a person or they even know you, but then if something needs to be done, it might not necessarily happen, right? That relationship needs to be built. So I absolutely agree with you on that. Career capital in terms of relationships is very key. It's huge. And it does compound it in, does. in um, outsized ways. Other forms of career capital, skills, mm-hmm. right? Whether hard skills, soft skills, coding, languages, they're all forms of career capital. Um, for me, one of the most important forms, especially early on, is self-awareness, right? Mm. I mentioned before, what do I do? What am I good at? And what's needed? That um, sort of Venn diagram. Yes. So self-awareness, skills, experiences, places, contexts, Mm. different types of people. Those are all 
forms of career capital that you want to build up, yeah, and let compound. I think this is a good time to talk about good times versus bad times, mm. right? Because now, you know, as we started off, we talked about the recessionary period and, you know, the general state of anxiety. But how can people who are entering the workforce make the best use of it? Uh, I remember backpacking at one point and meeting this Swiss couple. Mm. Um, anyway, his point was, Aki, what you should do whenever there's a downturn is travel. He said, because one, you'll have great experiences. It'll mm. just, you know, proverbially expand your mind. Mm. Two, when you get back, you'll have the best stories. And stories, by the way, are a form of um, career capital, right? And Is that why you need it? Is why you need to tell stories? Oh, it's not a coincidence, for sure. <laughs> and so his point was, every time I came back from a downturn and all these other kind of straight and narrow folks had like banged their heads against walls and had gone to B school or whatever. And I always had the coolest stories and I always got the best jobs. And then I would ride it on the upswing. And I remember thinking, huh, that kind of makes sense. It wasn't even a downturn. So it's a better investment to invest in travel than B school. <laughs> all things equal, I, I have to agree. Mm. <laughs> um, but no, the, the point is there is a, there are relatively good times in which I think to explore mm -hmm. and, and to diverge. And there are relatively good times to converge. Mm. Your yep. career time becomes relatively cheap mm. in a downturn, whereas mm -hmm. earning financial capital becomes harder to do, harder yes. to find a job, harder to find a high-paying job, harder to get those raises, mm -hmm. right? Mm. Um, so in general, whether it's going to school, which is something you've done, whether it's travel, whether it's volunteering, which is something I did, even if you're totally happy, in 2008, 2009, when that downturn hit, I was at Google, mm. and I wasn't going to let go of Google. It was a great company. I still mm. enjoyed it. But I did a, an internal transfer and I went into HR out mm. of a, a recruiting management role. Mm. And that was a fantastic time to do it. I got to learn. And then by the time the economy sort of fixed itself a, mm. a, a cycle later, I was now this Google person with recruiting, recruiting leadership and HR experience, mm. right? And then I got to deploy that in the upswing. Right? Yes. So diverge and explore when your time is cheap in the downturn and then redeploy when the upswing happens, get the great job, max out your earnings, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's generally a, a decent rule of thumb to follow. Got it. So what is some tactical advice you can have for people who are just entering the workforce? I mean, we talked about thing, you know, exploring as much as possible, but then from a Singapore, let's say from a Singapore Gen Z kind of perspective. Um, one would be become self-aware. If, mm. you know, if you do an interview, why did you do well or do less well? What did you enjoy about the interview? So one is go after self-awareness. Advice two is start finding people with whom you can discuss this stuff. Like mm. I, I wound up very informally creating what was now popularly called as like a board of directors, right? Mm. A bunch of people that I trusted and mm. that cared about me and vice versa that I could talk to about this. Mm. My dad was an amazing dad, for instance, right? My mom, same thing. But like they weren't really that board of directors. It was more mm -hmm. other friends other peers mostly that I learned to trust and be able to sound this out with. And you know that they have your back, but they would also give you the honest advice that you might not want to hear. Yeah. And a lot of it's just sounding board. It's just hearing your own voice and being mm. that sounding board for them, right? Mm. So that you can talk enough about your boss and why they're so amazing so that the next time you bump into an amazing boss, you might actually recognize it, right? Mm. It doesn't become random like it was the first time, mm. right? So a lot of it is, yes, they're being direct with you. They're being candid like a good 
board member should be. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is they're just listening to you so you can get out of your own echo chamber in your head mm-hmm. and talk about this stuff. Yes. Um, which I think because it's careers and jobs and promotions and status and all these things that we are so wrapped up in, yes. that doesn't, uh, we don't allow that to happen as naturally as it should, in which case you need to create the fluidity and, and remove the friction for doing it. Mm. Third, I'm going to, can I tie for third and give you four? Sure, sure, please. <laughs> One is start storytelling. Start storytelling, yes. okay. Yes, storytelling is, is such a superpower. It's a it's an underrated skill still. Mm-hmm. And I think people's, even if it's as basic as I, when coming from X, I am now at Y and I want to go to Z. Mm. And by the way, here's how you as a company or a board member or whatever can help me. Mm-hmm. That is incredibly simple, but so powerful. Cool. And fourth The one. fourth uh, we talked about is networking. I think it's incredibly powerful. It's really important. It, reciprocity, asking for help, giving help in return, and just appreciating the power of a good, targeted, intentional network. I agree. I think people think about networking in different ways, right? I think what underpins successful networking, in my opinion, is like genuine relationships, not building, you know, network for the sake of not saying that, you know, like, oh, you know, I've gotten a name card, stuff like, yeah. you know, there, there are people that I've met in my early career, you know, I've observed at least like how the, the many different ways in which people <laughs> network. Some people go out with like the stack of name cards and you're like, you know, I just need to finish yes. this this stash of name cards by the end of the night. But then literally you're going out handing name cards by the end and you're not necessarily connecting with people saying like, oh, you know, this is what you do, but like tell me something mm-hmm. that you are personally mm-hmm. passionate about because mm-hmm. you're not really getting to know them as a person. Yeah, networking has a massive branding problem. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately it gets branded by those folks with the name cards, right? <laughs> and um, that's that's real, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm we are both referring to that much more thoughtful, much more intentional, much more reciprocal mm. effort to understand someone, their motivations, their needs, and how you can help them. Mm. I think uh, there's like three species on earth that can collaborate together, maybe three four. species. So we're uh, not talking about like MBA, MBTI types. No, no, or <laughs> MBAs or no, human beings, I believe ants, mm-hmm. termites, oh. and I think there might be one other, but basically. There Those are, with feelers. Maybe. <laughs> they're the only uh, species out there that can do what we as humans can do, and um, relevant to this show, which mm. is help one another build and collaborate the mm. way we do, right? That's mm. what networking is. It's going beyond your immediate circle and finding other people you, with whom you can build, collaborate, learn, reciprocate, grow with mm. in a way that is, for me, uniquely human. Um, so yeah, spend time on that would be number four. What would your advice be for people who are introverted? That's real. Um, I'm lucky to be more, in this sense, to be more extroverted. Mm. Um, I'm I, very introverted. Yeah, so so totally. it, it really saps a lot of energy out of me yeah. to be at a networking event, especially if I'm not connecting someone. I guess, you know, the times when I enjoy networking is when I talk to someone, I connect with them, and I know them at a deeper level, and the person then becomes yeah. a friend. Agreed. Nothing drains me more than going to an event and just needing to be so on and processing all the signals. and It's absolutely draining. But it's all worth it when you click, right? Mm. And you find that person with whom there seems to be that uh, mind meld, right? That makes it worth then getting to know them more and vice versa, right? Mm -hmm. It is, I think, all things equal, easier for an extrovert, but by no means easy. I also think it's gendered to the extent it's, you know, it's all sorts of complex, I think, for a woman in ways that it's probably not for a man, mm-hmm. right? And yes. Certainly. So it's not to say, suggest that it's easy at all. Mm. I think one 
trend I'm particularly excited about in light of that is younger folks tend to make more friends online, mm. right? With uh, not just because of COVID and the pandemic and the prevalence of Zoom, but I, this is a trend that predates that, got accelerated like many things in the pandemic. Um, but I think there's an opportunity to, to more anonymously and or more um, less in person, right? Mm. With all the draining that that does for introverts mm -hmm. to be able to find those communities online first and build those rapports online first mm. um, in ways that might be a little more organic for folks, certainly for introverts. So I'm, I've done less of that, candidly, as, as a Gen Xer and an extrovert, mm. but I think it's probably something your audience finds relatively natural to them mm. relative to uh, generations past. Probably. I mean, I do, I do feel that um, there is a certain group where they really... Um, prefer meeting face-to-face. -face. I think face-to-face -face interactions, you can't be that, right? But then in terms of the first interactions, I, I do agree with, with you that the Gen Zs, you know, they are more accustomed to at least like online interactions before moving it offline. Yeah. Mm. And it's not to say, it's such a nice foundation, right? Of mm. course, once you meet in person, it's like, it's the best, right? You you get to take the relationship from whatever it is to, you know, multiples of that, I think, mm -hmm. in most cases. Thankfully, now there's at least a chance to establish the initial rapport digitally mm -hmm. and maybe maybe not you know add that dimension to it in person at some point yeah well i, I think there definitely is value to meeting a you know someone in person because there's a lot of other like signals that you pick up on right that you might not necessarily have online and, and i think i do think in general it's a good skill to be able to read people and that comes from experience agree sometimes you can't quite put a finger on it but then it's like a certain vibe right uh, and i think that's actually a skill to be learned actually agree as with interviewing, for instance, yes, right? When exactly. you're trying to hire somebody without having met them. Mm. I mean, I'll, I'll take that live meeting every day of the week and twice on Sunday over <laughs> having to do it uh, digitally like we had to do it for a long time. Yes. You know, what are things that you look for, you know, that is not skill set or job role specific? Um, curiosity, mm -hmm. right? I, I want a learner. Uh, my assumption is whatever the job is, it's going to change, right? And in ways that I can't predict. And mm -hmm. so I'll get a lot more mileage out of somebody who is resilient, who is adaptive, mm -hmm. right? So that curiosity, 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 I want to see evidence of some form of continual learning mm -hmm. on their on their part. Um, I try to hire owners, right? Mm -hmm. By that I mean, if I have to guide you, even as your manager, every step of the way, it's going to get, it just doesn't scale, right? Mm -hmm. And so people who've grabbed the bull by the horns, whatever the, the cliche is, right? But are used to just taking things, going with it, asking when they need help, and then asking for more, mm. great. Um, attitude, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the quote is, enthusiasm is worth another 15 IQ points, and I <laughs> think it is. Mm. Um, and drive. Like, drive. I can't, these are things mm. I can't teach, right? So, like, mm. if you, for whatever reason, like, oh, different of us have different chips on our shoulders for different reasons, and mm. I'm not here to um, judge those. Mm. But I like to find folks with that motor yep. because, um, you know, the other stuff, the hard skills and so on, the, the org stuff, they can, they're smart, they'll learn it, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't teach things drive like curiosity, ownership, curiosity. attitude, yep. and drive. Not mm. by the point I get to you. <laughs> yeah. Does it make a good acronym? I've tried. <laughs> Coda, C O D A. It's ah. not. It's not super uh, elegant. I'm working on it. If you come up with something, you let me know. I'll, I'll let you know. And <laughs> and tell us about the work that you do at Talent Stories. Yeah. Um, so you know, today, for instance, I'm headed to a startup, mm. and um, it's broadly team building. So mm. it could be anything from hiring, storytelling. How do you talk about you know what it is you do? 
why it's so exciting and where you're headed in a way that can grab people's attention, mm-hmm. right, in a, in a competitive talent market. Mm-hmm. It is oftentimes work around culture, right? Mm. So, okay, we've gotten to a certain point as a company, mm. but we don't know what we stand for and mm. we don't know our bar, right? Yep. That's something I'm running into more and more of mm. is companies wanting to codify what it is they stand for and translate that into some some form of performance management yep. so that they have a bar by which they can measure how they're doing, right? Mm. Um, attracting the right people into the top of the funnel, mm. efficiently assessing them, making sure they want to join by the time they're done mm. and minimizing the false positives and negatives. Yes. Easier said than done, but that's, of course. that's the type of work we're And that would differ so vastly for every client that you bring on, right? Because every company, be it like an SME startup or like a big company, is so different. Oh gosh, yeah. Uber was wildly different than Google, was wildly different than Netflix. They're all well-known company yes, they'll hire a lot of people but they had nothing to do with each other culturally mm, and and also the same company could be wildly different two years oh, on oh gosh right yeah, I, I mean I, I worked at Razor for example and then it was very different from the time I joined to the yeah. time I left pre and post IPO I mean there was a very big difference in team size culture different power plays or whatever it is different teams different people for sure these are evolving constantly all the time right? yes which is what makes it fun too. Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. So for, for listeners who like to find out more about the work you do or they want to, yeah, I don't know, like even have you as a mentor or like even talk to you, where can they find you? Yeah, I am, I'm on LinkedIn and mm-hmm. people, folks can follow me there. I post quite a bit about mm-hmm. these types of topics. Mm-hmm. We'll put the link on the show yeah, notes. Yeah, thank you to my profile there. And mm-hmm. then um, talentstories.com, it's one word. T-A-L-E-N-T stories.com. And you can sign up for a free weekly newsletter, which we send out once a week. It's three curated stories mm. about the changing world of work and some of the some of these trends we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. You'll also see a, a menu of advisory services if you're a company that's looking to be more thoughtful, intentional, and better about how you build your team, your culture. Mm. Yeah, mm. I think for our listeners and also for myself, I think there's a lot to learn from your experience, right, Breath, and the companies that you worked with a lot, you know, especially in the tech space. So, you know, definitely do go sign up for the newsletter and also go and look at the LinkedIn. But we'll put all these links in the show notes. But thank you so much, Aki, for being on. I learned a lot myself. Thank you, Junis. It was a pleasure. Really, it was really a nice pleasure. to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Genuinely. Thank you. Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcast at melisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on Me Listen or Apple Podcasts or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from Mediacorp and recorded at Scape Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time.